Good afternoon. This is Chickie Fitzgerald. It's Friday, February 27th, 2015, and this is the Executive Girlfriends Group. We are so happy that you have chosen to listen to the show today, and we have a very special guest. As, as most of you know, we normally are interviewing female authors, and uh, this particular topic, uh, this particular author was just perfect for the show, and even though he doesn't quite fit uh, our normal profile, I am so pleased to welcome Dr. James Canton to the show. Dr. Canton, good morning. Good morning, and thank you for inviting me. (laughs) Well, it is our distinct pleasure. And uh, your topic today is really about the future and about trend-setting and being able to track those trends, uh, and in particular, the word I love in the subtitle of your book is managing the game-changing trends that will transform your world. And, you know, I am just all about changing the name of the game, and I I get so frustrated personally with, with organizations that are just so stuck in the comfort of status quo. So why don't you give us a little bit of a thumbnail about you personally before we dive into the book? Well, I am um, born and raised in in New York, in Manhattan, came out to San Francisco to join a little company called Apple Computer in the early days, worked with Steve Jobs, and realized that technology was going to be a key disruptor in creating all this new change in the world. So I took it on, finished my doctorate, and then I've been working with high technology companies. And then my larger uh, companies came to me and said, hey, we want to figure out how we can be more entrepreneurial, more startup-oriented, not just about technology, but what are the top trends that are going to shape our world, and how do we get out in front of those and understand those? So I formed the Institute for Global Futures, and uh, mm-hmm. after working with four or five companies, and we basically do forecasts. I write books. My new book, Future Smart, as you mentioned, is the latest. It's part of a trilogy that I've been writing since 1990 about all the amazing trends technology, climate, energy, business, you know, how business is going to be and society is going to be transformed over the next five to 20 years. Great. Well, I am I am a, a longtime aficionado of Apple. I uh, always, uh, whenever I have the opportunity, tell the story about how uh, I went to visit the brother of a boyfriend years ago in the San Francisco Bay Area, and I was made to sign an NDA before going uh, to the bedroom they had assigned for me because Lisa was on the floor. So I was with the designers of, of one of the early, early uh, computers at Apple Computing, and I have been uh, an Apple fan uh, ever since then. So so glad to hear that, that you uh, had your start uh, in that environment. Yeah, well, you mentioned Lisa, which is a great example that not a lot of people realize that Lisa uh, was not a success for Apple. Apple is often, in fact, most people think that, you know, Apple and Google and Facebook and Twitter and all these fantastic, you know, tech companies that are, are have a huge market cap, that they're just, you know, they hit every ball uh, out of the ballpark. And right. at the end of the day, uh, two things about them I think would be interesting to your audience. One is that experimentation and being bold and embracing innovation in the culture is critically important, and that means there are a lot of failures. The other is that at Apple in the early days and through to today, Apple was one of the first companies and technology companies tend to uh, be somewhat, uh, let's say they embrace women game changers. 
And we mm-hmm. never thought different about that in 1981 uh, when I was at, at Apple. We just saw if you were a game changer then, we were color and racial blind to it. You brought the value, right. and that's what it made the difference. Right. Well, that's really interesting. I didn't know about that. And I, I'm wondering whether there was a, an understanding of the impact that not only women innovators but women leaders make on the profitability of companies. And there have been many studies about uh, you know, those that have uh, women in leadership positions and especially on their boards uh, helping to drive direction. Uh, they're actually more profitable at the end of the day. So what is it about women in particular, since we do have a largely female audience uh, on the Executive Girlfriends Group program, that makes them more ready to embrace the future perhaps than their male counterparts? Or is that, in fact, the case? Well, I don't know if that's the case. And I I sometimes think, uh, even though I'm surrounded by women, meaning I've got uh, two daughters, a current wife, uh, an earlier marriage that I know very little, as, as I think most men do, about really uh, what the, uh, let's say, what women are really about. I think women have a, a mystery <laughs> about them that uh, those of us who uh, are still trying to figure it out, who are of the opposite gender. But I, I would take a shot at this and say that women have uh, a capacity. Because one of the things I did in between Apple and starting my think tank is I built the largest valuing diversity program in the world at United Parcel Service. And they had a huge problem with uh, dealing with both diverse cultures and particularly women. There were no women on the board, no women in management at the time. And this was in the 90s. One of the things I I recognized is women tend to look at things much more holistically. um, and, And they're able, they have a large capacity to look at and balance ambiguity. Uh, and gray areas. Men don't do that very well. Men want to go to the, you know, the the black and white, and let's make a decision and let's move forward. And and this to- two factors: tolerance for ambiguity, which inevitably I think is a strength, and two is a, an acceptance of vulnerability of not knowing, not having to right. make it look right or good. And maybe the last one is willing to learn new things because that's just part of what I think, and again, I don't want to be gender-centric here and say, gee, women do this better than men, but men are just, you know, the if you think about the hero archetype, they're always trying to, you know, make the right decision, make the right call, move this forward. In, in, In many companies that are dominated by, I think, poor decisions, though it would be unfair to say it's driven by men versus women, but I do think that this, there are different ways and mental models. I write about the innovator's mindset in my book, Future Smart, and I really do think that women and men bring different things to, the, to that party to be a right. game changer. So what is, what is the risk tolerance profile of someone who is future smart? Great question. So the, the risk tolerance profile is somebody who is more open to learning things that may be important to expand an opportunity or to go after an opportunity. And, and also, they're not afraid, and let me turn that around, they, they, they are more courageous about looking at new possibilities and embracing new possibilities. Not like having to be an expert and get it all figured out and be perfect, 
but they're willing to explore new things. There's this great tolerance for, and it's more than risk-taking and experimentation. It's two factors. One is willing to learn new things and experiment in kind of opening themselves to new possibilities, but also in being able to predict. This is the very critical part of being future smart is be developing a predictive awareness. And that predictive awareness you have to earn. Part of it is courage to be willing to look forward, ask your customers, look at your competitors, see where the breakdowns are in your organization, your ecosystem, your industry. Right. And then be willing to look forward and say, okay, what will this look like? I was I was talking to a an Asian client last night on the phone, and we were talking about all the complexity. They're a multi-billion-dollar company. Uh, and interestingly, um, uh, a key woman is one of the top executives there, as well as, uh, and they were in Asia and Europe, the United States. They're not. I said, where do you want to be? What does it look like in three years? Let's put the stake in the ground. Let's describe what the company looks like in three years. Okay, now how do we get from where we are to there? What are the risks that we need to take? What are the challenges? What are the resources, people, talent? You know, how do we put all that together because of the mountaintop we want to own in three years? That's increasingly what Future Smart is all about. Game changers are mm. about looking forward right. and moving everybody in that direction but having a defined sense of what that future vision is. Well, you know, it's interesting because my background is uh, I've had nearly 35 years in the travel industry, and because of where I landed uh, early on in my career, it's always been related to the application of technology to the problem, right? And and the problem is one of, uh, you know, connecting buyers and sellers on the distribution side uh, and, and the expertise that, that I have honed in, uh, what we call in our industry multi-channel distribution, which you know kind of speaks to this uh, concept that you outline in Chapter 2 of The Connected Planet. And I think the travel industry, I wrote a book uh, years ago back, back in 1999 called The E-Commerce Pioneers because the global distribution system companies in the travel industry actually electronically connected buyers and sellers in 1978, way before the Internet. So... Talk to me a little bit about the connected planet and what you have seen uh, about the readiness. And again, I think it's one thing, and, and you point this out in Chapter 1, to be future ready and quite another thing to be future smart. Uh, the connected planet, I think, is one of the most important trends that is both emerging and we need to support and move forward. So, of course, I call it the connected planet because – a lot of the planet is not connected and needs to get connected. And I'm mm-hmm. a staunch advocate of growing more um, entrepreneurs around the world. And interestingly, women entrepreneurs, if you look at the data in the U.S. economy, uh, the fastest growing segment in small business is women entrepreneurs, women-owned businesses and women-started mm-hmm. businesses, which is, I think, very interesting because if you take that data and you correlate it, with that more women are graduating from college than men. Right. And then you add that to the third data set, which is that organizations are fighting over talent. And, of course, where's and who is most of the talent? It's women. Now, that's not the case in the rest of the world, per se. So the connected right. planet really is my series of trends to say, 
the the fusion of the internet, particularly the mobile internet, with globalization, with these connected technologies of IoT, the Internet of Things, the merging of computing, vehicles, sensors, which will create this kind of vital marketplace, is going to bring the next couple of billion people into one large marketplace where they can be buyers, sellers, and I think entrepreneurs. And the largest percentage of them, uh, I think, are going to be women who will make a massive difference on the planet. So this connected planet, simply mm -hmm. put, is about the you know the wireless revolution and how it will create more prosperity, productivity, right. and and more opportunity. On on another oh. side, it's about mm -hmm. all the new technologies that will drive, I believe, an entirely new kind of paradigm for the planet. Well, now all we have to do is correlate that back with the funding that is occurring, because unfortunately, with all of that brilliance and innovation the venture community is still not backing women-owned companies to the same degree that they are, uh, even companies that have a co-founder who's male, which, uh, you know, is a, an unfortunate uh, barrier that, uh, that women are faced uh, with today who do want to start up something new. I want to move on, though, to, uh, again, getting away from the gender discussion for a minute to the new future of business, which you talk about being predictive, smart, and mobile. And again, I was involved in, in, in my industry in mobile very, very early on. Uh, I remember sitting in the office of Ericsson Wireless in Search Triangle in 1999, and they were, uh, we were sitting with the group who was developing this uh, interesting little technology called Bluetooth, uh, and it was a collaborative effort uh, between companies. And I had my, my Palm Pilot in my hand, uh, which was, of course, at the time connected. And I thought, you know what? Someday mobile travel is going to be a big thing. So I, I actually bought the URL while I was sitting in the meeting. And, you know, I watched my own industry do mobile very, very badly. Uh, and it's only now that they're starting to really get it and, and applications are coming out on the smartphone devices that really are what I would call a little bit smart. Uh, we still have a, a broken paradigm in my industry in that uh, the travel companies all expect the consumer to do all the work before they uh, engage with the application. So, uh, you know, we even though the technology has been there for a long time to support predictive, smart, and mobile behavior, um, you know, we're still dragging applications from the 1970s uh, onto those devices. So, What's your view of the future of business as it relates to that? Well, the travel industry, uh, I don't want to analyze the travel industry. I think we all pretty much know there's a number of industries that have been uh, traditionally laggards when it comes to technology yes. in general, and mobile technology is just part of it. And so, you know, I think travel is just one of them. Healthcare is another. Uh, the ones that have kind of gotten it and embracing it are you know, entertainment, uh, financial services, and that's yes. just the way it is. So, you know, moving forward, I would say, you know, as a futurist, I, I get paid to talk about the future, write about the future, and think about the, and strategize about the future. And, and moving forward, you simply put, you can't be in business. Uh, you can't even think about business, when, whether it's the future of one minute from now or 10 years from now, without embracing a mobile platform. I, I am still shocked that so many companies don't get this. I asked them, uh, I was at a meeting the other day with, with a number of uh, key large companies, and I do a lot of keynotes around, around the world, and I, I said to them, so tell me, what is, your, what is your connected planet strategy? All right, what is your mobile 
strategy, and how mm-hmm. does that relate to mobile business processes? How is mobile changing you internally in terms of your business process? How are you going to move information, understand and solve problems with customers? Now, how is that going to, how are you going to relate to your ecosystem externally to the marketplace, your customer, your competitors, your vendors? How is that going to relate to your supply chain? And you could see that less than 10% of the room were there. Now, these are the brand name companies you read about in the Wall Street Journal every single day. Why? So, you know, this is fairly early in the game. Now, I'm not putting them down because many of our listeners are working for those companies or or they're part of their ecosystems. This is just early in the game. This is – so if you want to be a game changer, it's a a lot about asking – I think the right questions. What is your mobile strategy? What are the mobile business processes we should be looking at internally that will create more, you know, communication, collaboration, productivity? These these are the critical changes. Now getting beyond this to building innovation ecosystems which are these kind of caretsus and these networks of models of how you move forward. That's where the next 3 to 5 years is going to go. But those companies that are still kind of wading through, looking in the rearview mirror, kind of legacy systems, still think it's about the desktop or the, I think, you know, I saw my, I was in a Tesla the other day, uh, the automobile, and I saw my, pulled up my website on, in the Tesla, and then I tweeted about it at, at Future Guru, it's my handle at Twitter, you know, it was amazing, I got so much traffic, people don't know what the future looks like, but when you see it, you go, yeah, I want that, okay, I want that, now, now, now the next step of that is video in the car, right? Video in the car, interacting with you. And the next step from that is these kind of, you asked the question about predictive. We've talked about mobile, but quite frankly, every enterprise, they're going to either compete, win, or lose based on being a predictive enterprise. Now, that conversation, I'm just starting to have that conversation with my audience in writing this book, Future Smart. But every one of our listeners should think, okay, how do I become a more predictive organization? I don't care if you're 10 folks or you're you know, 100,000 folks. You've got to think about how does prediction become a competitive business strategy? How do we, if we can do prediction better than somebody else, that means we're going to win at a game that is, I think, very dynamic and will shape the future of the 21st century. Right, right. You move on from that topic to talking about the social enterprise of the future, and I think that this is another area where our our growth as corporate America has has been fairly stunted, and and that some have done well in looking at you know being green and and you know sustainability to them means really the world that we live in. Others, uh, you know, have dabbled in giving back, but really not baked it into their company's DNA. So what is the social enterprise of the future? Well, the social enterprise of the future, and and my chapter on that, really says you can't be a game changer unless you incorporate into your model being a social enterprise, meaning that you're giving back. That not, Not just like, hey, we make a lot of money here, so let's now take a portion of it and give it back. I think that is kind of, you know, that's social enterprise, you know, 1.0. What I'm talking about is social enterprise 2.0. How do we rethink our supply chains? You know, we make stuff in most of our stuff products that we make are made in Asia. Okay, what's going on in Asia? Keep in mind what happened to Apple, right? Uh, Apple 
really didn't have supply chain visibility, and therefore, and many clothing companies didn't either, all of a sudden, they got outed around their poor practices. Really, it was a, a lack of insight and understanding around the supply chain. So think about it. What would Social Enterprise 2.0 is to rethink your product mix and your service mix in the context of not just having ethical practices, not just giving back to causes, but, and this is the crit critical message of this chapter of my book, is companies, if they're going to do this right, Social Enterprise 2.0, they got to care about what their customers care about. I'm going to say that again. they got to care about what right. their customers care about, and then they have to put their money where their mouth is. So if their customers care about, let's, let's say, that 98% of the, uh, of the marketplace of, of your customers for any product, United States, Europe, uh, less so in Asia, but they'll come on board, are increasingly interested in p protecting and healing the environment. And that means that every, not just giving money to causes, that means you've got to bake in to your supply chain, into your products and services, you actually have to create products, I believe, and business practices that will not just celebrate, but go to healing the planet, go to fixing things. Maybe right. and you, could, you can start to see this right now. I mean, the, the big gigafactory project, you know, with uh, Elon Musk, um, you can start to see this with Apple. They, they purchased a large amount of land to convert to solar. You know, there's a lot. I mean, UPS has these has had for almost two decades uh, these these gas cars and electric. I mean, there are things that you that you can find. I think a fit between doing good and doing well. And I think right. more companies are going to have to change their business model to embrace the social uh, enterprise customer that's looking at them in a new way. You know, there are more millennials and jet. Gen X that are saying, hey, wait a minute, I only want, I have lots of choices of right. where I buy my clothing. Hey, you know what? I got lots of places that I can buy that next cool consumer product. If you're mm -hmm. not communicating, by the way, I view this as a tremendous competitive differentiator, kind of like what we said about mobile. You know, if, if you're only going to have, let's say, the 80-20 rule, you're going to have 20% of the leaders are going to embrace mobile, 20% will embrace predictive, predictive awareness, 20% may embrace the social enterprise and get that right. Guess what? They get the bragging rights, and that they'll get the customers because they'll be able to leverage this for competitive value. So there really can be a win-win if you're smart. Right, and you know what we've seen, and, and I've got another show that we do uh, on uncommon giving and what corporations are doing to transform their cultures uh, to be that social enterprise that you talk about. Um, but even the company that is still profit and bottom line focused, there are study after study that show that those companies who have adopted the social enterprise 2.0 as you describe actually are more profitable and that giving back actually multiplies their profitability. So, you know, while while that isn't a good reason to do it and you can't give it lip service, it has to be baked in, as you say, um, I, I think it's just a very interesting phenomenon. Look, I have helped start uh, five companies. I sit on the boards of uh, billion-dollar companies and startups. I'm a capitalist. I think it's possible to do good, do well, make a positive right. impact, heal the planet. I've written, I think, a bold book that is provocative and, and come out, you know, four 
recognizing climate change and for alternative energy. These are these things make sense in terms right. of national security, and they make sense in terms of the bottom line. I don't have a problem with that. None of my clients that I advise about how to embrace a social enterprise and do right by the the customer and the marketplace are going to go broke for for pioneering and being a game changer around social enterprise. Not one of them. In fact, they'll actually be the market leaders. I, I mean, Absolutely. I work with GE. GE is a perfect example. Under uh, Jack Welch, GE was uh, struggling with being a polluter, uh, struggling. with not. They were not a friend of the environment. And, and, and Jeff Immelt and Beth Comstock, who they let the echo imagination, they turned the entire culture of that company around. It's had a tremendous impact of their ability to be able to not just provide, you know, wind turbines and go after non-polluting sources, but mm -hmm. they came out as advocates for the very thing. They went to the opposite end of the spectrum, and that's a great example. Right. Uh, you don't have to be, you know, eating granola and living on the left coast to get it right. <laughs> All right. Dr. Canton, let's uh, shift our, our discussion a little bit to the economy, because, you know, we, we have just come off of a, a cycle that, for, for some of us, has been very painful. Um, and as we look out into the future, uh, you know, those who do pay attention to the economy know that, you know, that it is cyclical. Uh, but what is your view on the new future of the economy? Well, the, the macroeconomics, meaning the big picture, and I'll talk about the, the U.S. and maybe I'll say some things about the world, right? So the big picture for the United States is is though jobs have not come back, and there's some reasons for that, jo jobs meaning jobs, unemployment is still uh, lower than where it should be, where we want it to be. At the end of the day, the U.S. economy is the strongest economy in the world. So the U.S. economy has done has come out of this period of time. You'll see the Federal Reserve, eventually they're going to have to start raising rates. And the U.S. economy, U.S. industries are, are doing much better than ever before. Now, GDP, just the numbers, the G GDP and GNP are up in the United States. We've been through three or four key down points, the tech bubble, everything. Before that, the SNL, then we had certainly the crash in 08, which has been very difficult to, to deal, to come out of, but we're coming out of that. Also, the U.S., part of this reason is that the U.S. is no longer writing a check for uh, seven to eight hundred million dollars a year, and sending it off to uh, uh, the Middle East for oil. The U.S. is, and this may come as a shock to listeners, the U.S. is energy independent today. Mm -hmm. Today we're energy independent. That has a massive impact on our independence, our national security, and most importantly, on our economic well-being. So that's part of what has uh, changed the dynamics of making the U.S. robust. The, part, the other part of it is you've got the rest of the world that is still struggling. I mean, Asia, led by China and India, those economies are still roaring forward. Those are mm -hmm. the largest economies in the world, the largest populations, India and China. You have to look at the world economy as kind of a, you know, a table. They're holding up their end. But keep in mind what's holding up their end is the strength of the U.S. dollar, and also that 98% of manufactured goods come from China. So there's this linkage between Asia and the U.S. economy. 
one of the problems of the world economy is Europe. Europe's productivity has been continually low. Unemployment is low. They're not known as innovating as fast. So uh, that's going to be a problem, whether the EU will stick around. And, of course, right. then you've got these geopolitical problems, which are a drag on the economy. Uh, but keep in mind, as the U.S. becomes more and more you know, known, uh, we will actually be exporting uh, energy, which that will be the first time in, in, in maybe you know 50 years. I guess what I'm saying is is that uh, it's been a difficult time, but I believe we're coming out of it. I think things will look much better uh, in terms of the U.S. economy. And one of the things we do well is we create new industries, we, we harness innovation, and we turn them into new opportunities. And when I think about that, again, all of my business clients are – trying to hire as fast as they can. Talent is a key thing, but quite frankly, the talent they're looking to hire are knowledge workers. They're people right. with strong skills. And if you're if you're out there and you know you've got a skill set that maybe was good five years ago or three years ago or ten minutes ago and it's not why people are hiring, you need to move your skill base up to embrace new technologies, particularly new skills, globalization, learn a language learn new competencies because that's what companies are hiring for. And if they can't hire them here, they're going to go hire them someplace else. Right. Right. Absolutely. Dr. Kenton, we are running out of time this morning, and, and I'm going to uh, suggest to my producer that we get back in touch with you and, uh, you know, have a, a future smart part too because there are so many topics uh, that we have just barely touched on, globalization being uh, the next one that you talk about in your book. Um, if my, uh, listeners would like to learn more about uh, the work that you're doing and, and uh, about your company, uh, again, the name of the book is Future Smart, and the author is Dr. James Canton. So can you tell our listeners how to reach you, and then hopefully we will have another show where we can dig in just a little bit deeper. Sure. They can uh, uh, go to my website. They can get to it through futureguru.com, uh, futureguru.com, or Global Futurist, or they can uh, contact me on Twitter at uh, futureguru. Wonderful. Well, I am going to make sure that I am following you. And, uh, again, I hope we can get our schedules together in the future where we can dig in deeper because this is clearly something that we can only scratch the sur uh, surface in the 30-minute call. But thank you so much for giving us uh, a little bit of your Friday morning. And uh, I look forward to reconnecting with you in the future. Uh, again, his organization, uh, the Institute for Global Futures, uh, we are talking to the world's leading authority on the extreme future. Thanks for joining us today. If you'd like to know more about the Executive Girlfriends Group, please see www.executivegirlfriendsgroup.com. Dr. Canton, have a great weekend. Same to you. Thanks for inviting me. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. Okay, and that's how you do it. Yeah.